calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered. It is our monthly interview show where I am very pleased to get to sit down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the video game industry. And uh, my subject my <laughs> this week, this month, I should say, Steve Gaynor. Steve, you are the uh, co-founder of Fulbright, uh, previously at 2K, Bioshock series, uh, Gone Home, Tacoma. We're going to get to all of it. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me as your subject. I prefer yes. that to guest. I feel like I'm part of a science experiment, which is very good. Yeah, I guess at Disneyland you'd be our, you'd be the guest, mm -hmm. but here you're just a subject. <laughs> I'm here to analyze you. No, I mean it's uh, you've had an incredible career, which which I think, you know, you you're an indie developer, and that does you know some some people think that's a bad thing. Like no, mm. that's because it's you know you're not making AAA. Right. $30 million games, but no, you make some of the most creative, interesting stuff out there. Thank you. Uh, most recently, Tacoma, which is out now on PC and Xbox One, yeah. uh, getting excellent reviews. Thank you. But we, of course, I always love to start at the beginning, because the, the beginning of the story helps inform the rest of the story. So were you, were you always a gamer all your whole life, or did you come to it late? No, I mean, I... I I don't remember a time that I wasn't playing video games. I grew up with uh, Commodore 64 nice. in my room. Um, so, you know, I was playing, uh, I don't know, I remember playing Godzilla and Muppets games on the Commodore 64. And then pretty, pretty early on, I became a Nintendo gamer. I had an NES when I was a kid. Um, I had a next door neighbor, like, I, I was really lucky because I had a next door neighbor who was like, I think four years older than me, okay. and he was just like a classic '80s nerd. Like he literally had <laughs> Star Wars bed sheets, like the, the full thing. nine, right? Yeah. And so he was a little older than me, and kind of like got into, you know, he was like he he got Nintendo and he got Nintendo games, and I played them at his house, and I was like, I want one of those. So like I kind of had somebody aside from just because I'm an only child, so I didn't have like older siblings or anything, yeah. but I had kind of that person that was like, check this out, check that That's out. That's cool because so, kids, yeah. you know, don't often play with kids. Four years younger than you. That's right. cool that you had that you had that neighborhood friendship going on. Well, there's the whole like you know like 
next door neighbor thing. I, yeah. I kind of put that into a Gone Home in one point where I was like, when you're a kid, your next door neighbor is kind of like your default friend. It's just like <laughs> the, the next closest kid. Um, but like I was, yeah, I was really lucky to have uh, somebody that. Uh, that that I could kind of learn about that stuff from, you know, a very he was like you know D and D, Monty Python, all that, <laughs> all that cool guys. So stuff. when the sixteen bit era rolls around, mm-hmm. Genesis kid or Super NES kid? SNES kid. SNES yeah. kid. I was Nintendo all the way until I got a PlayStation. Yeah, PlayStation One when it came out as well. Nice. Yeah. I remember it was at my bleh, God, what would it have been? Probably thirteenth birthday. We rented a PlayStation from Blockbuster because Blockbuster and That's renting right. consoles yeah. were both things that I used to exist. I rented a Dreamcast when that came out. I rented a Saturn yeah. and I played Virtua Cop <laughs> on it. Um, but yeah, when it came out, we rented it and um, we got a copy of Loaded, which was an ultra-violent top-down. I like, remember that it, one. It was like a twin-stick shooter, kind of. Anyway, and Resident Evil 1. Yeah. And that was the one that we were yeah. like, all right, we're, we're getting scared by zombies all night at this birthday party. <laughs> So uh, when you're when you're doing your asterisk comma eight comma one action on, on Commodore, <laughs> if I'm remembering Commodore usage properly, yeah, I mean yeah, you had to load, yeah, God, yeah, Sy- syntax error. I had a lot of syntax errors in my in my youth. Yeah, uh, did you did you start dabbling in in trying to edit or make your own stuff at any point, or were you just playing at that point? I actually time? I remember that I did. Um, I know that like in a like. People that were kind of just like half a generation older than me, I feel like there were people who got into programming or game development by like reading. Like they used to have computing magazines that would just have code printed out in the back of it, and you could copy it in and run it and yeah. kind of make your own stuff. I wasn't quite there because I was too young. I remember once my dad and I bought like a like how to program a game book. And I think we got as far as like programming like a smiley face to show up on screen or something. I was not dedicated enough when I was like six years old. Yeah. But um, a little later, I I think the first, actually something that was really, so I was going to say the first um, like making my own games stuff that I did was like doing basic, you know, like the basic programming language to make mm-hmm. like text adventures or whatever. But actually, um, there were some NES games that like had level editors, and I remember using those for Excite Bike. Make, make your own tracks for Excite Bike. <laughs> and there was also um, Wrecking Crew. Do you remember this game? I remember that it's one. A, I, I was an NES kid too. Yeah, no, it, it was pretty obscure, but it was actually a Mario game. But the 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 premise was there were like these skyscrapers or like you know kind of like buildings that are like made of blocks with like ladder. It was sort of a little bit Donkey Kongish. They're okay. like platforms with ladders and bricks, and then enemies that would move across them and stuff. Now I think you were playing as Mario, and you had like a sledgehammer, and so you could break the bricks, and you would do it to clap stuff on the enemies. Yeah. I don't know, whatever. But you could like use the editor to like place tiles and make your own boards and stuff. So I think that what those kinds of things were what first were my first introduction to like making your own video game stuff and then I got into um, the first like real stuff that I made was uh, similarly they shipped the build engine level editor Duke with Nukem. Duke Nukem 3D. Yeah. So like I made a very extensive Duke Nukem 3D level uh, in, in my yeah, teens. Deathmatch multiplayer levels, right? It, I actually made a single player level. Nice, yeah. nice. Because they, they shipped, you know, you could place any enemies, power-ups, any yep. scripting. I made, like, I don't know, swinging doors and, like, a bunch of scripted stuff where enemies would come out. And, like, that was also where I learned my first uh, uh, lessons about, like, backing up your work. Because at some point, <laughs> I, like 
tried to put something in and just hit save and it just crashed and then would never load again. So I was like, well, first video game level I ever made, not getting that back. <laughs> yeah, I did a few uh, Doom wads yeah. back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And I wish I still had them. Yeah, for I, sure. I so wish I did, but... Um, so it sounds like your were your parents pretty supportive of your of your computer tinkering yeah. desires. Yeah, my um, my dad worked for um, AT and T, and so I think he was really into the whole like kids that are growing up like are gonna need to have computer skills. So that was why I like had a Commodore sixty four in our house, That's and great. I you know like he and I would play like um, I don't know Com- Carmen San Diego and stuff together on his IBM PC. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was something that I think my 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 parents really were sort of like this is something that we should have around, and That's yeah, fantastic. it kind of led into game stuff and yeah, all sorts of uh, avenues, I guess. So so, what did you originally want to be when you grew up? Was it always you know game designer? Want to get into games, or was there was there another version of? Well, I remember so like my dreams came true. I remember I it was it was when I played for whatever so. For whatever reason, I remember it was when I was playing Final Fantasy One, which I had rented from the local video store. Yep. Which is like renting Final Fantasy games at a video store is just like a recipe for sadness because you're you're never getting that save <laughs> back. Like <laughs> that's right. Um, but but I was playing it and um, like I had a subscription to Nintendo Power and like the manual and the Nintendo Power had a lot of like the beautiful Yoshitaka Mono art in it and stuff. I remember I was like probably six or seven years old and. I also was big into, you know, kids are into, like, construction machinery and, like, that kind of stuff. So I remember telling my mom, I was like, I either want to be a house builder or... I think it, I think my exact phrasing was like do drawings for Nintendo games, <laughs> which translates into yes. make video games. And then fast forward, and I made a game about being in a house, and I built that house. So I'll take it. I think that I counts. got there. Yeah, check. <laughs> yeah. check, mom. Are you proud of me? <laughs> um, are you from Portland? Because you're there now. I know you went to college there. Right. Um, no, my wife is from Portland, so that's why I ended up there. I grew up in um, the Midwest and then moved to Florida when I was like nine. My, I didn't. My my family moved to Florida yeah. when I was nine or ten. I wasn't like, see if <laughs> mom and dad are headed to Florida. Here it's sunny down there. But yeah, um, no, I, I moved to uh, Oregon when I was like nineteen. Gotcha. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of curious why you know Portland is. San Francisco is a big hotbed for game development. Yeah. Austin, Seattle, sure. Um, Portland. It seems like there's kind of a it's a fairly small indie community there. Yeah. Uh, it seems like you know such an amazing area with so much creativity in general yeah. in Portland. How come? Uh, do you? It seems like the the game development community should be bigger in Portland yeah. than it is. I mean, I think it is growing slowly, um, which is cool to see because when we moved yeah. there, I mean, part of why we started our own studio in Portland was because I wanted to move, like, my wife and I just wanted to move back to Portland. Like, it's where we wanted to end up, and it's where our family is from, so we did that. But, you know, having come off of, you know, working on the Bioshock series and kind of having that background, moving to Portland, you can't just really submit some level design resumes and, like, get a job, you know? Like, I did a little bit of, like, contract work, but if you want to, like, at that time, especially if I wanted to do the thing I was doing, it's like you kind of have to start your own thing. Um, And since then, um, like Night Dive Studios, who are in town, um, brought back System Shock 2 and a bunch of other older games, and now they're making like the System Shock remake, and that's kind of getting bigger. And also, um, 
the the Portland Indie Game Squad or the Pig Squad colloquially is a group that um, hosts a lot of like game jams and events for local game developers to get together and kind of collaborate on stuff. So it's grown a lot in the five years since we've been back, but that's relatively speaking, right? Because yeah. um, places like Seattle or LA or San Francisco, I feel like they ha- they really have these hubs of these huge businesses that bring a lot of people together and then they start splintering off, right? Like Valve was founded by an ex-Microsoft, you know, by Gabe Newell, ex-Microsoft. And like Microsoft kind of pulls in all of these people and then it spreads. Or here in San Francisco, you know, there's Silicon Valley and there's LucasArts and, you know, those kinds of things. And Portland has um, both Nike and Intel are kind of headquartered on like the periphery of Portland, but there hasn't ever been that huge like software tech magnet there um and so, so it's, it's super really grassroots right? right it's had to it, it's built from the ground up instead of this this one big monolith that starts to um kind of you know expand from there yeah so i mean you kind of almost answered my next question is it sounds like the the community that it, the game development community that is in portland is fairly close yeah yeah i mean we are um i think i mean i feel like we kind of have crossed paths with practically everybody everybody in Portland who makes games on some level, and it is like those um, you know kind of community events that happen that are really great for that. Um, but you know, I think that uh, it's it's a little easier to have that close knit. We're all in this together kind of feeling when you don't have uh, like hundreds or thousands of people that are that are all involved. You're kind of like, oh yeah, here we are. We're in Portland. We're trying to do our thing. So yeah. it's really cool. Um, if I've got my timing correct, my dates correct here, you got your start in the games business as a QA tester at Sony yeah. back in 2006. 2005. 2005, yeah, yeah. okay, so yeah. PS3 is gearing up to launch. Right, it was, uh, yeah, it was before the PS3. I, don't, I think that when I worked there, they were like, they were, they were like we're going to get PS3 units in soon, basically. So I was a PSP and PS2 tester. Nice. So what, t- what, were, what were some, how was your experience there? What, was, what did you learn? Like sort of, did it, did it? I mean, it clearly didn't scare you out of making games. <laughs> it, it went the other way. Yeah. But yeah, what, what was it like? Because uh, you know, we get that question a lot. I'm sure you get the question a lot. Is oh, I want. How do I get into making games? Yeah. And a lot of times, a lot of thing, things I hear from devs and and just from looking at people's experiences, QA is, seems to be a a good foot in the door way it can be, yeah. to get in. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I assume it still can be. It certainly was twelve years ago. Or so whatever. yeah, what, what, can you share some some of your experiences from stuff you learned working, you know, getting your foot in the door that yeah. way? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the thing that was really valuable about doing certification QA and certification QA is specifically like a game is finished or almost finished, and the developers send it in to make sure that it can be released on the platform, as opposed to um, kind of like internal or development QA where it's really about like, we're building this game and we're testing it as we go and kind of adding in features. You're making sure that that people's uh, profiles don't get wiped out by some crazy bug. Yeah, and especially in when I was working there, it was like, what happens when you pull the memory card out while it's saving? You know, all that kind of stuff, right? You're never uh, supposed to do that, Accurate. Steve. <laughs> you should not have done that. That's part one. Part two, does it blow up your entire PlayStation? Because if it does, then we've got a problem. But um, since, it was, since it was that kind of testing, it meant that, you know, we, we got put on 
a game, a new game every week or two, at, you know, like at the at the longest usually. Yeah. Um, and so, as someone just getting into thinking about design and game development and how this stuff works, um, it was really interesting to basically. I think that something as as game players. We tend to, you know, we're, we're very self-selecting. We're kind of like, I'm going to play what I've heard is good or the kinds of games I like or yeah. my friend told me that, that I should check it out. And so you tend to play better stuff or stuff that you more naturally would be interested in. And working in Cert QA means they're just sort of like, play this for a week. You know, beat this like a dozen times. And it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. And so it was a really interesting exposure to kind of like here's this kind of game I would never normally play, and now I kind of see how it works and functions and relates to other stuff. Or even more interesting than that, like, here's kind of the knockoff version of a game that I do like, that I have played before, and, and I can kind of see why it worked in this, the thing that, that I'm into, and then here's this other stuff that kind of contains all the same parts, but why doesn't it come together? Or, you know, like, you, you have those points of reference that you might not have otherwise, unless you're a game reviewer, <laughs> and, you're, and you're like, hey, you gotta review this, what is it? Doesn't matter, <laughs> like, to play job. through it, yeah, yeah. give it, a, and, and I think that that is something that's, like, really valuable, actually, for not just thinking of game design in terms of, like, the best and the brightest and your favorites. So it sounds like you, you almost you started to develop kind of a you know, like an X-ray vision. Yeah, you could, you could sort of see through a game into its right. into its pieces and how it's supposed yeah. to work, or, or, or see it like reflected in other games. So you're sort of like, oh, here's the same like mechanic or the same feature, right? But the very polished or the you know the the better tuned version works for these reasons or or whatever. Um, also, just after I was in. QA at Sony, I was in QA internally at a developer on a game that was in like mid-development, which is a totally different experience, but also really valuable for just seeing what the process is like and how the finished thing gets on screen, what it looks like when it's like very early or when something is new, um, and being able to just kind of um, know how to communicate within a, within a development team and know what the different departments are and kind of be exposed to what making a game is before you have to be making part of it. <laughs> so it sounds like you very much would recommend that as a as a path to somebody looking to break in. Potentially, there's, there's a lot of valuable experience to be mined there. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of I think there are a lot more options now, honestly, than there were when I started. I think QA can still be really valuable, and the, I know the dev tools have gotten so prevalent and a lot. I guess a lot easier to use in general, right? right? That yeah. you can even kind of just start. Dive in yourself. You, if yeah, you want I mean, to. you can totally start making your own stuff. You can start working in a much smaller studio with a smaller group of people, or yeah, you can get into QA at a publisher or a large studio. I think the biggest thing is just what what you're attracted to as a player, you know. And as a, as a player, I was coming from being the you know PC and console game player, and kind of being like, I want to make you know, want to work on these big games, you know. Like, how do you get closer to doing that? And QA, you know, in a bit at a big company, can totally be a path towards getting closer to actually making part of these kind of huge experiences that that come out. Yeah. So you uh, you were making your own levels for Fear. That's the, right. The yeah. first person shooter of Fear at home. Um, so you, you clearly continued your, your build engine <laughs> right, self-tutorial yeah. and moved into the 3D. Because that, that's where it lost me. Like I had, I had a blast. Uh, I think it was Doom Ed I used yeah. to make the Doom ones. Right. But that was all 2D with just vertices and right. stuff. And then when you like Quake and it, goes, it all goes 3D, I was like, I'm out. I don't have the time. I'm not <laughs> well, I remember for this. using the Quake engine and 
it being pretty daunting. I didn't make a whole lot of progress with that. Um, but yeah, uh, Fear was made with Lithtech, which yeah. I don't remember. That may have actually been a branch off of the Quake engine. I can't remember. I but, don't believe so. That was because yeah. uh, that was Shogo, right? right? Yeah. Was and it was it just built internally? I can't even remember. I now. believe it might so. Might have just yeah. been rolled up from because like even. In fact, um, I think those. I th- I think what you're thinking of is. Yeah. Believe I wish I could think of the gentleman's name, but I think like the main programmer on that went to work at Valve after. Okay. Yeah. I, anyway, anyway, somebody will Sorry. check us yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I found it, maybe it was just that I was at a different point. Maybe I was f- feeling more dedicated to it or whatever, but I kind of got over that, you know, barrier um, yeah. with making levels for fear. Um, and you got the, over your fear. Yeah, I got over fear. my fear of, <laughs> of 3D level design. It was um, real dumb. We'll edit that out. That's <laughs> terrible. We will not. No, we will not. Um, <laughs> yeah, what, so what... You clearly were a big fan of of that game then of Fear. Yeah. What uh, what was it about Fear? It was known for its really good AI. Right. What what was it about that game that uh, that drew you in? Well, I was a big fan of um, the No One Lives Forever games as yes. well, and the same kind of creative director writer um, created Fear, who had who had been uh, in charge of the the Nolf games, and so I was really excited for Fear when it was coming out, and also it was at that perfect time to have like. You know, like Matrix-like bullet time and all of this kind of like very cool action um, kind of gunplay, but also coming from that studio, it you know it had like a strong kind of story-based you know narrative sure. aspect to it, and they did the whole like you know supernatural kind of like spooky you know scripted jump scare kind of stuff. So I I thought it was a really unique game at the time, and I was a fan of of that team, and I I just thought that you know the Combat Encounters, the FPS stuff was, like, really great. Um, But also, they released their tools and all of the assets in the entire game so that, basically, you could theoretically make anything that they had put in the game yourself. And when I was looking at, if I want to make a level design portfolio, you know, what tools am I going to use? I wanted to say, what's something that I can make, you know, a story-based kind of, like, standalone thing and be able to to kind of use what's there and use all those tools to to make something of my own because a lot of you know like the valve tools um, are are kind of similar I think in that they give you access to a lot of stuff in the game and and everything that um, you can make with it but the fear stuff I think I had a little bit more of a direct connection to like oh I could make something like that you know I can like make some radio messages and put in some cool combat <laughs> encounters and make a spooky little story and, and see if I can build that you know? so you use that you, you ended up you got a job <clears throat> pardon me working at uh uh, down in Houston yeah. with TimeGate. Yeah. On the, they were making a fear expansion pack exactly, called yeah. Perseus Mandate. <laughs> uh, so, was it surreal then to be then getting paid to yeah. be making fear? Like yeah. you've been doing it on your own no, and putting it totally stuff together, was. and now it's you're, now you're, you're getting uh, doing it professionally. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's my actual job. <laughs> no, I mean it was really cool because I mean that was one of those times where I think it's really valuable to be. Working on stuff because it is what you have the most direct connection to or kind of what you have the most enthusiasm for as opposed to what's the most popular dev tools or what's the biggest game out there yeah. or whatever, right? Because people ask me about getting into games and starting as a designer, and I basically say to them that you need to be making stuff that you most want to be playing, you know? Because if you're, if you're like, well, I don't really like... 
you know, I'm not really like excited about what I can make with the Unreal Engine tools, but I know the Unreal Engine is popular, so I should do something with that. I think that people can learn tools, right? And a lot of places use their own internal tools that you can't even learn ahead of time, you know? Um, and so I think that it's way more valuable to be saying, I'm going to make stuff that's like what I want to play and the kind of games that I want to make professionally, no matter how I'm doing it, you know? So, like, if you're like, well, I can make a text adventure, but that's not really what I'm excited about, I would say figure out how to make what you're actually excited about because that'll come through and that'll lead yeah. you more towards doing that thing, right? We and so that in our line of work too, write what you love. Right. Like that's, yeah. that's totally universal advice. Exactly. If you force yourself into some <laughs> other mold, then you know, you're not doing anybody any favors, right? And so with that, uh, it was kind of especially true because hardly anybody really made maps or made mods for fear, really. Like, I mean... There were people out there, but it was not as popular as any any as a lot of other um, uh, mod tools or, or games. And so, when I was making Maps for Fear, and a studio that was making a Fear expansion pack needed a level designer to make Maps for Fear, it was like, well, I can already do that. I don't have any experience. Like, I'm excited about it, but like, I can hit the ground running because I know how to do this already. I had a small studio who kind of needs to get this project done. They're like. All right, then you. <laughs> Get up in here. Let's do this thing, well, right? So you go to Houston. Are your parents stoked at that point? Because you've, you've pursued this dream. This, I mean, I know you were doing the QA stuff at, right. at Sony, but now you're like, now you're not, you're not just testing. Right. You're not just jank, uh, yank, yanking memory cards <laughs> right. out with the system on. You are, uh, you're in there. Yeah, making stuff. I mean, the harder thing was, you know, I had moved to Oregon, yeah, when I, was, um, when I was 19 and I had finished college there and then my wife and I had moved down to San Francisco. So I was actually living here in San Francisco when I was yeah, doing Sony's the testing here. stuff. Yeah. Um, and so then I moved to Houston for like six months to ship that expansion pack. And so in a way it was, I, I'm, you know, it was what I wanted to do and I was glad I did it because it's like, I don't know necessarily when or how I'm going to get like a design job, especially not like an FPS level design sure. job like I want uh, at all, anytime soon, who knows, right? But I have this opportunity now, and it was kind of hard because, you know, I was still like, I was coming back to San Francisco to visit, and I wasn't getting paid a lot, and it was sort of like a long distance thing, and like all, it, it, was, it was a lot of kind of what ifs still, but it was really valuable to be able to say, like, if I go to TimeGate and I do my best on this project and I, you know, put good work into it and I have kind of that resume line that says one ship, one ship title yeah. as a level designer, you know, I can kind of bring that back with me and, and build from there. And you did. Yeah. Uh, the opportunity did present itself. 2K Marin here yeah. in the Bay Area. Right. Uh, how does that come about? You end up on... Bioshock 2. Yeah. Um, well, I actually met a couple of the guys from 2K Marin at uh, GDC, the Game Developers Conference here in town. Because um, I had been going to GDC for a couple of years before that already. Um, I had been uh, semi-scamming press passes via Idle Thumbs. If you know the Idle Thumbs <laughs> podcast, um, it used to be a like text article site. And so... Um, I wrote articles for them, and and they got press passes for things like E3 and GDC via yeah. that site. So I had been going to that for um, for a couple of years, just because I mean I knew I wanted to get into game development, and there's such interesting 
talks and presentations at GDC, and you get to see the the IGF pavilion where there's all these indie games. That, That's probably the perfect place for a budding game developer yeah. to be is to just just soak yourself at yeah. GDC, right? Yeah. Well, and I was really lucky that you know we came here for my wife's grad school, so like we just happened to be in a way, or you know we ended up in San Francisco, and so just being able to like take the Muni to you know, or the Bart to um, to to Moscone Center and go to GDC was huge, um, but yeah, I was there and some friends in the industry um, encouraged me to talk to the two Camerin guys. Um, it's funny, yeah, like you end up forming really tight friendships with other people in the industry because you kind of come up together. Sure. Um, I'm sure that you've talked to like Greg Kasavin and um, Amir from uh, from Supergiant. And also Chris Remo is now at Campo Santo and he was one of the founders of, of Idle Thumbs. Mm-hmm. But at the time he was doing games journalism stuff. So like I went to GDC. I had corresponded with Greg for years just because like I was a fan of his. I actually interviewed him for a, for a thing like when nice. I was still in college. So I met him for the first time at GDC and he was like, if you're thinking of like getting another level design job, you should talk to the 2K Marin guys. And I was kind of like, I don't know, like, why would they even, I've shipped, like, one expansion pack, and they're making Bioshock, so, like, why would they even, like, I never would have considered it, right? right? But he was like, you should do that. And then I was like, eh. And then Chris was going to interview Ken Levine, like, at their booth for, like, a game, like, for a Shack News interview. And yeah. he was like, I'm going to the 2K Marin booth. You want to come? And I was like, yeah, I get. And so then I showed up and talked to them, and really it was my friends in the industry who encouraged me to actually take the leap and kind of put myself out there in a way that I wouldn't have. And it all, but it all came from like I was already at GDC. Yeah. I was there where the people but were there. The I could le- just kind of cross paths. Yeah, the with lesson them, yeah. though clearly is if you want some, if you want to to get somewhere in life. You can't just sit back and wait for a phone call. Right. You got to go get it. Like yeah. you're, you're out there. You're you're scheming your way into GDC, <laughs> and you're you're just you're you're going out and getting it, basically. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so easy to to talk yourself out of things. I mean, obviously, there's going to be other opportunities that you do go for, and they just aren't a match, or they don't work out, or like you know, nothing's guaranteed. But um, you know, in that case, I had started from that assumption of like, well, they wouldn't be interested. And then actually having the push to say, like, would you guys be interested? And then being like, yeah, we should totally talk more. You know, like, send us an an application, email me or whatever. You know, it's like that is the turning point that then maybe that opportunity actually can happen when it definitely wouldn't have otherwise. Since you clearly, you've already sort of said multiple times that, you know, you love story-based stuff. You're making story-based little mods and things with fear. and uh, So... I take it you must have already been very uh, much a fan of Bioshock at that yeah, point. That for sure. clearly had to, yeah. had to gel with you, I would well, think. Well, and of, I mean, I loved System Shock 2, and so I had played the Freedom Force games and SWAT 4 and basically had been a huge fan of yeah, Irrational, Irrational all yeah. the way up uh, to Bioshock. And then, yeah, I, I remember I was at TimeGate and I played um, the Xbox demo of Bioshock, like, in the break room. You know, it was one of those games where it's like, the demo for Bioshock just came out, let's download it, and kind of the studio crowded around, and, like, I drove that that demo, and everybody, you know, kind of had that experience, and then, yeah, I mean, whatever it was, like, seven, eight months later, I was working on the sequel, which is, like, crazy. <laughs> um, but, you know, that game had a huge impact on me and, and the, the, the work that 
um, that Irrational had done leading up to that game uh, was just some of my favorite stuff in the industry. So yeah, it was a huge opportunity for sure. Did, uh, so I'm curious, you ended up, I mean, you, you're kind of, from where I'm sitting, you may disagree, but it seems like your sort of career springboard really was Minerva's Den. Yeah, um, prob- I don't know if sure. you agree with that or not, yeah. but w- so where did Minerva's Den come from? It's it's you know that was when DLC was just starting to become a regular thing with games yeah. as a way to sort of keep things going. I mean, I guess back in the day we called them they were expansion, <laughs> they were expansion packs. packs. They were separate in another box. <laughs> I but. have expansion pack experience. <laughs> I said, yeah. But uh, so what was Minerva's Den already a thing kicking around that you just came in and, and took the reins on, or, or was it was that your baby start to finish? Um, it was inspired by some discussions that we had had in the studio um, yeah, at 2K Marin, like during Bioshock 2's development. Um, you know, I think one of the things that you kind of have to be good at when you're doing design work and story development work, because in games, you know, story and mechanics and design kind of, they all talk to each other, right? And so I think that making connections between disparate concepts can add up into a single kind of like cohesive whole, but you have to be looking out for where that inspiration can, yeah. f- can come from. So we were working on Bioshock 2, and I remembered, well, A, during my interview at 2K Marin, one of the interview pieces was like, pitch a level for Bioshock that could have taken place, I forget, like between Fort Frolic and... Um, I guess uh, that would be Hephaestus, the the mechanical area. So, like, pitch a level that could be slotted into Bioshock, and what would it be, and who would the character be, you know, kind of your antagonist character, and what would the story be? So I had pitched the computer core of Rapture as a thing with, like, a guy who was kind of splicing to become smarter and see all the possibilities with math and stuff. So that was my, my kind of, like, this would be a cool idea pitch during my interview, and so... I think that was kicking around where I was like, well, if we want to make some DLC, what part of Rapture could we make? I had an idea for that. I remember this. Um, And then I remember in... um when I was in the, the design pit, you know, when we were working on the main game, JP LeBreton, who was the lead level designer, he was just kind of telling a, a story about um, how he and the lead designer of Bioshock 1 had been kind of just... Can I swear on this? Yeah, thing? say whatever you want. Uh, Unfiltered. Okay. okay, yeah, that's true. Randy Pitchford was in here, and he's, 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 <laughs> dude was just like a sailor. It was great. <laughs> Unchained. <laughs> um, so they were bullshitting uh, uh, and, and saying, like, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, with Rapture's advanced technology, if they had, like, created the original AI that sort of in the unspoken, like, you know, fan fiction had, like, led to the technology that ended up being, like, Shodan in System Shock 2? Like, wouldn't that be a, a cool idea or whatever? And so those two ideas, when the, the, the concept of, hey, we need to do story DLC after the main game came together, I was like, we should do the computer core of Rapture, and it can be about this kind of, like steampunk AI that's created and kind of draw from those System Shock System Shock 2 ideas of like spoilers, Shodan being able to like impersonate other people yeah. and kind of have multiple um, identities and so you know, it, it, I mean kind of like I guess the last thing that I threw out there I was um, fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to lead the DLC by um, Zach McClendon who was the lead designer of Bioshock 2 I think mostly because, you know, I, I, I had been a dedicated level designer and, like, done, done my work on the yeah. main game. But also, I was one of, I think, the few people who was sort of like, hey, we're done with the main game. Well, I've got some ideas for DLC. Like, here's some, like, 
I think we could we could do this. I think that would be cool. Okay, going and, out there and getting yeah, it, right? Well, you didn't just sit back and be like, okay, well, I'll wait to be told yeah, what to do next. Yeah, it was more like, hey, I, you know, if we're doing story DLC, here's some ideas, you know, I'd like to hear your feedback on them or whatever. I think it was just sort of one of those things where it's like, you want to do DLC, right? We need somebody to do it. Yeah, go for <laughs> it. You're in, <laughs> you know? And it's like, you know, it, it was a lot of responsibility. It was a huge opportunity to basically, Absolutely. like, be able to mm, create like a small part of the the kind of you know the the fabric of Rapture's fiction you know Did you even... see it that way at the time or or what I saw it as was I needed to do something that felt like it lived up to the other games in the series you know something that felt like it fit with the tone and the fiction and like that world in a way that didn't feel like it kind of like broke the rest of the stuff around it, and also yeah. that if you played it, it would feel like, oh yeah, this is of the the quality level, or the you know, this is this is of a, a kind of feeling that feels like this is Bioshock Belongs. and not yeah. just sort of like some other thing that's off to the side. You know? Did you see it? Like, did did you have a master plan from day one? Like <laughs> that you wanted? Like, oh, this get this gets me one step closer to being able to have my own studio and tell my own stories or no I, I wouldn't say so at all like um, you know I, I I perhaps to my detriment I'm mostly only looking one step ahead you know which is like it makes means I'm not a good chess player um, <laughs> but it still means I'm sort of like okay level designer Bioshock 2 opportunity to make something cool with DLC and then from there, focused. yeah, yeah, because because you're not saying like, what am I going to be? I mean, having a five year plan is good, <laughs> but also you're not saying like, well, whatever is happening here, what's most important is like three steps out. It's yeah. like this thing has to go well. So, um, you know, with after we completed the DLC, it was like, well, you know, Two K Marin isn't making more Bioshock. Irrational's making more Bioshock. Irrational has been a huge inspiration to me. You know, I shipped this this DLC that people were excited about. Maybe I can work on the next you know full title in the series. And similarly, you know, skipping ahead a little bit, you know, I didn't even we didn't even move back to Portland saying like we're going to do this to start so I can start my own studio. It was like we want to move back to Portland. We want to be there. Now, how do we you know how do we do that? Well, I I, mean, I guess we need to start our own thing once we get there. You know, but yeah. it, it has been mostly kind of like looking at what. Those possibilities are in front of, of us, and then seeing what to do, and 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 just taking it one step at yeah. a time. I think. Before I get to uh, to Bioshock Infinite, yeah. which I do want to ask you about, uh, were you? What was your reaction when Minerva's Den came out to just huge critical acclaim? Like, did you? I always like to ask developers, <laughs> like, do you know you have something really good, or, or are you so just sort of tunnel vision in the moment that it's not till someone else yeah. can kind of come at it with a with a fresh perspective. So like, yeah, what what was your reaction to well, to the uh to the acclaim that it Yeah. Got? Well, I mean, we um you know, we we made something that we thought came together and that we thought was cool. I mean, it was really interesting actually because as far as where we went after this, um I remember when we were working on the game, I had pitched like, you know, you beat the the last boss and then you're going down into Porter's personal quarters where it's like uh, you know just sort of a quiet space his office and, and living space and I pitched you know like you go down the elevator and we just kind of take your guns away and you're, you just like walk around and look at the stuff and I remember people on the 
a couple of people on the team were sort of like, oh, but the space is so cool. It would be great for combat. You know, you should have some enemies in there. And I'm, I was like, I really think that after you've had your last big fight, you kind of need that I quiet love that. time. Thank you. See, I, I appreciate <laughs> right. that in games. I hate the gauntlet. I hate right. having to run a gauntlet at, an, at just the end of the, a game where it's just like, well, how do we end this? Uh, let's just throw everything yeah. that they've already seen at them, but like four of each and make it really hard. How about 700 dudes? <laughs> I like I'm the thinking, wind down. I like yeah. the, and, the, and the so, exhale. Yeah, so I mean, you know, we were like trying to invest in, oh, that's going to be, you know, a good ending experience and it feels like there's something there. But when you're making it, I think you only have the perspective on does it seem good, but you don't know if it's going to be like people are really going to react to this or is it going to be huge or people, you know, going to... You, you know, you can you can hopefully tell if you're making something that's like hitting a certain quality bar, but how people are going to react is like never known. And I remember, like the weekend before content lock, which is like when you're just like we can't put any new things in the game; we just have to bug fix. Yeah. Um, I brought a test kit, a 360 test kit, home, and had my my wife play through the game and I just sat next to her and took notes and you know she played through the whole DLC and I took like 10 pages of notes of just like oh that thing's in the wrong place or you know whatever and she got to the end when it's like the final kind of like monologue that Porter is having and I was like oh I gotta fix that and I just looked over and she was just like (laughs) and I was like whoa whoa like I didn't I didn't see that coming but seeing someone that I had this really you know like she's my my wife like we're we've had you know years of um, you know of our lives together and seeing that it had that kind of effect on her made me think like whoa maybe we've made something that you know our, our, our people are going to be able to so like, that forge that kind of connection with yeah and so then when it came out you know it's it's DLC for a sequel it's not like it got the huge round of like hundreds of reviews from all different outlets or whatever but seeing that people said that you know they were like this feels like it fits with the best of the Bioshock series and stuff like that. It's like, all right, great. Well, you know, we 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 did our job. <laughs> it was really cool to see because, you know, like, it's hard to get attention for any game and it's hard to get attention for DLC, for a sequel, for, sure. you know. And, and I think at that time, we were at a really lucky time to kind of be coming out, like, with, like, the Mass Effect 2 DLC and the Red Dead Redemption DLC. And it was kind of a little bit of, like, a golden age for, like, you know, the single-player yeah. DLC had being high-quality and people being excited about it. Um, but, yeah, you know, seeing that that it really kind of landed for people that were fans of Bioshock and that... Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe, you know, like, Bioshock 2 was such a complicated project to work on because it's sort of like Bioshock felt like it was so, like, you know, it was iconic as a 
thing, right? And, and I think that everybody, players and developers, felt that tension of like, well, how do you follow that up? Like, what is Bioshock 2? You know, and I think that there were kind of mixed takes on that when the game came out. And so seeing that people could take a chance on the DLC and kind of like be able to get into it um, on its own terms and, and kind of walk away with an, an emotional connection to it was like really, really cool. So that does lead to Bioshock Infinite. Yeah. You end up working uh, with Irrational on it for, for a while. Yeah, um, I was there for a year. For a, so yeah. well, I'm always curious. Ken, Ken Levine is one of my white whales that I, for this show. <laughs> like, I would love to have him on here and interview him about his he career sometime. Traveling. He hates traveling. He almost never like, goes he, to things. He's earned the right. He's like, yeah. Todd Howard's another one. You, you know, you got to come to him. Todd's just like, nah. The Todd father. you yeah. got to come to him. <laughs> I've never heard that, but now I can never unhear it. That's fine. Um, I I'm going to think it every that. time I see yeah, him that's now. fine. He's, I, lo- I love him. I've interviewed him a million times, uh, just not here right. like this. But anyway, uh, so the point of that whole <laughs> stupid aside on my part was, what's, uh, what's Ken Levine like to work for? Especially, you know, you just, you're saying, you know, you were just such a fan of Irrational. You yeah. played every, you know, System Shock 2 onwards. So, so what's it like when you, you go and you're working for Ken? I mean, I was really lucky to have, among like, to even have the opportunity to like work directly with him a lot because you know, like, you got a big studio. Sure. Not everybody actually gets a lot of FaceTime or whatever, right? But um, when I was working on Infinite, I was a senior level designer, which in my case basically meant writing level design documents and level design pitches and then talking through them with Ken and a group of other senior people at the studio, but mostly kind of like pitching level design docs to Ken based on the requirements of, like, you know, the the main story beats and what uh, mechanics need to be introduced and all that kind of stuff. And so I really got to learn a lot from, you know, going to Ken and kind of being like, here's my ideas for solutions to these design problems. Like, kind of here are the the specific details of what happens between these major points and being able to see what his and, like, Nate Wells and Steven Alexander, um, what all of their perspective was on, like, me being like, what if we did this? (laughs) And then being like, well... Maybe some of that, but here and here and here are the things that we think about when we're saying, like, what are we going to put in an irrational game? You know, what's going to speak to players the way that we want to? Or what are the other kind of, like, factors that, as somebody with less experience, you know, you don't have in mind? Where you're like, what if we did this? Um, and so, you know, Ken and I um, worked really well together, and, and we still, um, you know, keep up with each other and stuff. Um, you know, I visited him when I was in Boston last year, or earlier this year. Um, so, you know, I, I feel really lucky to have gotten to kind of have that experience of not just working at Irrational, but getting to actually kind of be exposed to a lot of Ken and the other kind of, like, senior Irrational guys' experience that came from, you know, every... Like, you know, Ken was the writer and one of the... Um, you know, main designers on the the early stages of the original Thief, you know, and then System Shock 2, and then uh, all the games, and then, and then Bioshock, and being able to say, like, I was able to contribute to that project, but also to actually, like, learn about the, the mindset and where those games came from was um, something I'm, I'm really, really grateful for. And Infinite ended up, you know, it was in development for a while. Is there is there anything of concrete of yours that we would recognize in the final product? I mean, I am lucky to be able to say that a bunch of the stuff that I, you know, like, spec'd out early um, made it into the game. 
in the final form that the actual like dev team that spent that last like year and a half yeah. like making it real um, uh, built. You know, I'm, the main level that I was responsible for um, was Finkton, which is the f- kind of uh, factory town yeah, where that. yeah they kind of introduced going through the tears into different versions of the universe to kind of get the one that they were looking for. Um, so a lot of the kind of like. Beats that I that I that I built in ended up getting, um, you know, actually turned into a real video game <laughs> by <laughs> by the rest of the the team that like crunched super hard to to make that a reality. Um, but you know, it, it was one of those super interesting experiences to work on a game in some of its formative stages for like a, a solid year, and then leave like a year and a half before the game comes out, and then play the finished product and be like. Oh, they kept that in, but that's totally different. And this level didn't even used to be here at all. And they switched these things around, but that's still there, you know. And kind of like all of it, it's a really surreal experience to play through something like that because as a developer, you know, you leave a year and a half before the game comes out, you pretty much expect you're going to be like, well, none of the stuff I put in is going <laughs> to be there, right? And to be fair, last time I had seen any of those levels, they were just like gray. Boxes, you know, with like really super sketched in stuff. Um, but how much was recognizable and how much you could compare directly because there was recognizable stuff and new stuff and different stuff um, was like super fascinating because, um, you know, you usually, I think, don't get to have that kind of perspective on, on something that you work on. Yeah. So, so if I may ask, why, why leave? You know, why was yeah. it just time to get back to Portland at that I mean, point? I mean, like, honestly, it kind of was. Like, I had worked on yeah Infinite for a year, and I knew it was gonna be another, you know, good year plus before it came out. And you know, my wife and I had never lived in like New England before. Boston was like kind of a new and different experience for us. Having uh, multiple feet of snow on the ground for like five months a year <laughs> was Florida like a new thing. Here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, even Oregon, it's like rainy and gray, but you aren't like. How is this snow still here? It's May, you know, um, piled up next to the road. But like, I think that I think aside from all of that, the biggest thing was I was just sort of like, I got to that point where I was working on Infinite, and it was such a huge production, and I just realized that I didn't. I was like, I don't think that I want to work on stuff that's this huge anymore. You know, like I, like it's such a giant ship. You know, like, turns really slowly. There's so many dependencies on everything that happens that, you know, I I think that looking at it and saying, am I going to ship this game? Like, am I going to be here for the next year, year and a half, however long it takes to, like, get this thing out the door? And if I don't feel confident in that, the responsible thing to do is just say, all right, I don't, I don't think that I can be here for ship, so I've just got to like make a clean break now. Because mm. in a lot of cases on, in development, if you leave six months before the game comes out, you're putting the rest of the team in a way worse place than if right. you leave early enough that so they can find somebody to replace you and have them have time to like spin up and become productive before things really get hairy and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I had kind of done that year, felt good about what I'd been able to contribute recognized that this wasn't a game that I was going to be able to like stick it out through through the end for various reasons and also yeah you know my my wife and I were uh, were homesick for the Pacific Northwest so it was just kind of time um, is there a part but, of you though that goes man I could have if I can s- stick this out I can have BioShock infinite <laughs> on my resume and then and then maybe I can do 
Like maybe have that, maybe that opens right. more doors for me, right? I mean, I think that that would be a factor if, if I was in that position of saying that like, yeah, I want to like keep working on bigger and bigger stuff. Yeah. You know, if I looked at a game like Infinite and I was like, I want to be in charge of something like this someday, then I could totally see that. But at that time, I was like, this is just way too too big, right? Like this is this is the uh, the the block the summer blockbuster of <laughs> games and. You know, I having gone back to to Portland and started my own thing. You know, it's like similar right now in what we're doing and, and going into the future. I don't have any perspective of like, all right, well, I want to build this into like twenty people and then sixty people and a hundred people and then like you know making something that like you were saying is like a fifty million dollar production or something. It's more like we want to make stuff on a scale that we feel like we can all basically kind of like we can all fit in one room and we can make stuff that we believe in and there's various ways to work at that scale um but going down the other end of the road and being like you know i i, I don't know leading a team of like 100 200 people is not something that appeals to me yeah you saw, you <laughs> o- saw overall, your version i don't know yeah that that version of your future right. you, yeah, <laughs> you, well, you processed and, it and i don't and like you know like Life is long, hopefully. Careers are long, hopefully. I guess that I'm, you know, I'm not going to say that the person I am in 10 years or something isn't the guy that's like, you know what, actually making a big blockbuster game would be awesome, right? But at that point, I was sort of like, this isn't the ladder I want to keep climbing, you know? So if if in 10 years we're we're playing... Gone Home Three, the open world <laughs> multiplayer yeah. cooperative blockbuster. And we'll just we'll pull yeah. this clip. Yep, just just <laughs> go back to the tape. Didn't he say something about that? No. Um, so it's, it's 2027. <laughs> so where you go home, you set up shop. Uh, where, I mean, I'm now. It's maybe just now clicking for me. <laughs> Literally gone home. Yep. Uh, is was the game idea born out of that? Out of that sort of return to where you wanted to be, and right? I think I think it kind of had to be subconsciously in some ways. You know, like I think that the conscious side of it was saying, okay, you know, we are a few people that have worked together on the Bioshock series. We know about making these kind of first-person experiences and this kind of audio diary-based storytelling method and all that kind of stuff. So, if we want to make something small, and if we want to make something that doesn't have any combat in it. You don't have to say, like, who am I fighting? Who am I killing? Right. We could make something that's just about... I mean, we could make something that's about anything, right? Like, you could make a game like Gone Home that's in a medieval castle or a space station or, you know, kind of take your pick. But at that time, we were like, there's nothing that says we can't make a game like this just about a family and you're exploring their house to find out who they are and and what happened to them. Um... And so going from there, it's like, okay, well, you know, let's set it in Oregon. It's where we are. Let's set it in, you know, the 90s. Again, that's for, like, mechanical reasons consciously, which is we don't want cell phones, phones, we don't want email. Um, But subconsciously, it's like that's when we were teenagers. And, like, drawing on those experiences of kind of, you know, yeah, like, leaving the place that you're used to and ending up somewhere that you think you want to be and and putting it through that lens of a smaller experience like that, I think was totally influenced um, in part by, you know, the circumstances of actually making it. Does the term walking simulator piss you off? 
No. No, I mean, you're good with it? Because I mean, I've seen it sort of, yeah. I've seen it used maliciously, right. and I've also seen it used totally innocently, too. Right, I mean, it's one of those things where it clearly came from a place of being like, oh, like being dismissive about it, right? Yeah. Like, oh, this is just a walking simulator. But the flip side of it is like, you never get to choose what terms are used for your work, you know? Like, hardly anybody gets to say like, call my <laughs> call this genre of work <laughs> this, and then it, it takes off. Like, I guess sometimes it happens, um, but most of the time, it's kind of like the audience or the you know the the critics or the um, the the people out in the world are the ones that say, well, this thing doesn't really have a name, so here's a name for it, you know. And it might come from one place and end up just being a term that people understand that kind of loses its initial uh, uh, connotations or whatever. I mean, I think that what is meaningful about it is just that it's an acknowledgement that this is sort of a kind of game that hasn't really been done before in a lot of ways, yeah. right? It's sort of, there's this new subgenre of you're like, well, it's like a first-person shooter, but there's no shooting. You know, it's a story game, but not like a, you know, RPG, yeah. like, dialogue tree story game. It's like about what is this thing, right? And it has a name. <laughs> and so that's useful. And I love it too because, uh, you know, I've, I've been so lucky to get to sit here as, as a games media guy for yeah. 15 years now and I've, I've seen the pendulum swing. There's right. always a pendulum swing, right? Like, you know, went from competitive shooters to cooperative shooters. Now it's kind of come back to competitive right. shooters yeah. a bit. And like, you know, we, I, I feel like I've seen too the story be important in the, in the system shock Days, Bioshock, right. and then it kind of swung away from like, well, just it's pure action. Who cares about the story? Right. And I feel like the the walking simulator is kind of the pendulum swing back right. that we've seen now towards. Well, no, the story is all that matters, and we're going to make <laughs> right. we're going to make a subgenre that's just that. Yeah. Well, and some of it I think is um, you know something that's interesting about working in game development and game design is that it's all a, it's an ongoing dialogue. Right, where you as a designer are looking at other games, you know, other designers' work, and they're looking at what you do, and everybody is kind of, you know, referring to these design problems that are being slowly solved or addressed. And I think that, you know, we got to a point where people are like, well, we can use some of these tools. You know, we can use some of these established ideas or ways of playing a game, but apply them to a different kind of focus. You know, we can take like what is established in first person shooters and from like environmental storytelling in those kinds of games and focus it so that's like the point of the game. Right. You know, I think that uh, similarly with uh, like the first season of The Walking Dead at Telltale, you know, they they were able to say we're going to take a lot of the core components of a classic point and click adventure game, but we're going to remove a bunch of it yeah. and we're going to focus it on how can this be about you know, an emotional journey for these characters and making hard decisions, as opposed to about solving you know yeah, complex three part puzzles. They've been making those puzzles, right. for a long time well, and gone relative, you know, kind of under the radar right. a bit. And well, and I think there's something generational about it too. You know, because like so, uh, Jake Rodkin and Sean Vanneman, who are you know the founders of uh, Campo Santo, who made uh, Firewatch, they were the the leads on the the first season of Walking Dead. And then yes. similarly, you know, I worked on the Bioshock series, and then um, we made Gone Home. And I think that there's this generational aspect of being able to say, like, I grew up playing these games, 
but I didn't grow up making these games. And I grew up playing these games and a lot of other games, and I can kind of have that outside perspective on, well, these parts of a classic point-and-click adventure game could be applied to something that other games normally talk about and become this new thing. You know, if we say, like, you don't have to have complicated inventory puzzles, you can just have these other things, you know, that come from that and build it into something new. And I think that similarly saying, you know, we can take experiences like System Shock or Bioshock and kind of combine them or reassess them through the lens of, like, the story side of classic adventures or, you know... The, the this this version of kind of a, a synthesis, I guess, um, of of different kinds of games and kind of subsets of different parts of different kinds of games to turn it into something that hasn't quite you know been done before. And, you know, I think you look at Firewatch and you see it is a combination between a first-person adventure and this kind of dialogue tree, That's Walking so Dead like dynamic um, character building that it comes from kind of having access to that whole palette and seeing, like, what can we remove? What can we add? You know, when I was working on Gone Home, something that I thought about, you know, was like, okay, you've got, um, you know, a, like like a, a, a Bioshock-style game. You have a first-person exploration game. But there are other games that I've played where you find things in the environment that tell you part of the story. And so, like, things as disparate as like System Shock 2, or not System Shock 2, uh, Silent Hill 2 were an influence to me where you find in like a note and you see, you know, a physical like rendering of the handwritten note right. and, you know, you can, you're, you're gathering so much about the environment and the tone and the mood from finding these things and being able to kind of say like, what if we took that, you know, and, and overlaid it on this and kind of turned it into something that all supported that that core experience that you want the player to have through these means, as opposed to coming from, like, what are the requirements of the genre first, and how do we fulfill those, and then what do we do with it? It's more like, how do we take all these different things that the ongoing design dialogue have brought together? You're making your own rules rather than just sticking to the, the, the template, basically. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're sort of, you're probably starting from a template, right? Yes. And then you're, like, saying, well, what if I, this, this, and this we can pull out because they don't actually support this other aspect of it. And this thing from, yeah, a, a Japanese survival horror game, and this thing from, you know, and you can kind of say, and if we integrated those, that would all kind of bring the player closer to this central experience that we think all these things are kind of pointing at. Well, on that note, there's something I've been wanting to ask you ever since I played Gone <laughs> Home, which is, uh, did you mean for it to be part horror game because <laughs> this is no joke I'm not yeah. just kissing your butt since you're here <laughs> that game Gone Home is the scariest non-horror game <laughs> I've ever played in my life like and I I love that about it the, yeah. the, was that on purpose? it was it was it was on purpose after a point if you know what I mean so a lot of what we did with Gone Home was really predicated on like like I was kind of saying, like consciously about like mechanical requirements, which yeah. are like, okay, we need to, for instance, we need to keep you inside of this house. <laughs> like you can't just leave, and we need you to not just call the cops, right? <laughs> um, and and we need you not to just be able to turn on the TV and like, why can't I flip through the channels yeah. on the TV? And so you know, we were like, okay, well, maybe it's at night and there's a huge thunderstorm outside. That's why you can't go outside. That's why the phones are out. That's why there's no TV reception. Okay, and so now we're like. 
also we've made this big sprawling Victorian mansion because that more supports a kind of Bioshock type like hall and room you know level construction which we're also relying on for kind of laying out the audio diaries and everything and so now we're like okay you're in a big creaky old mansion in the middle of the night <laughs> during a thunderstorm like and there's no one around right yeah like you're totally stranded there <laughs> and so we're sort of like okay all of those things point towards there's going to be a zombie or a serial killer or something, right? It's, like, it's very Resident Evil, right? Yes. Like, the Re- Resident Evil, you couldn't go out the front door because there was a three-headed dog out there. <laughs> um, but, like, taking one step back from that, you're still in this mysterious, empty mansion at night. And so it was less of saying, let's start from, we're going we're gonna to set this up like a horror game and then really flip people's expectations. It was more, oh, we're building something that really is saying to the player it's a horror game. And so now we have to be conscious of that and we have to do things that will guide them away from that and towards where we want it to end up, yes. right? And kind of acknowledge, okay, we know what you're seeing. We know that you're, like, nervous about this, which is good because I think that's how Katie, the player character, would have also felt in that situation. There's sort of a, a good overlap there. Um, but it was also our job to say by the time you get to the end, you're no longer playing because you're waiting to find the yeah serial killer that's going to jump out, it's just because you care about this family and what happened to them, and that's what brings you through to the end. So uh, you know, Gone Home touches on coming of age issues that that I have to imagine really resonated with a lot of people that played the game. What were some of the more kind of memorable emails or tweets you got from people that oh. that really connected with it? I mean, there were there were really. That, that's something that's interesting about shipping a game like Gone Home is that people did have really, really personal connections to it. I mean, there were people who talked about how, you know, they had a close friend or a sibling that, you know, came out when they were younger and that they, you know, wrote us to say, I really felt like playing Gone Home gave me more perspective on what they would have been going through. It made me, or even just like, it brought me back to that time and it made me remember, you know, what it was like to be around them when they were dealing with these things. You know, there were people that said, you know, I am that older sibling who was away and couldn't be there for, you know, my my brother or my sister when they were having this really hard time. And I, I felt those, like, pangs of being like, oh, Katie wasn't there either and, like, how painful it was to to know that, you know, you couldn't, be the support that they needed when they were going through yeah. whatever they were going through. I mean, it was really interesting because there was at least one or one or two people who wrote and honest and, and said like, you know, I don't know any gay people. I've never really had a lot of sympathy for you know. I've been kind of against gay marriage or whatever. And playing Gone Home made me feel like I got to know this character as a person, and it really kind of made my perspective on that different. It kind of changed my mind on how I felt about those issues. And all that stuff is really valuable in terms of, you know, if you're making entertainment or if you're making art and it can actually make people reflect on their own personal experience or the experience of people they actually know in life or just how they kind of empathize with whoever, you know, with with someone else's... um, uh, uh, you know, perspective. Um, I think that you know that is something that you can really only kind of like hope 
could ever happen. Yeah, you've, you you've succeeded at that point as a as an artist, as a as a creator. Have you I, not? I, I mean, I think that there's this level of you want to make something that's like entertaining and fun, but also make something that if somebody feels like it can kind of enrich their own perspective or, or you know make them kind of be reflective about experiences that they've had, then um, you know that's kind of all you can ask for. Yeah. So uh, again, I mean, the Gone Home was really your, I mean, that was your real breakout success in the sense that that's when, oh, like, oh, Fulbright. Okay. Right, sure. I mean, yeah. So uh, were, were you surprised at all at just how well it was received and how, how well it did? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we, we rented a house in Portland and we made that game in our basement. <laughs> um, and, you know, we wanted to make something that, would feel like it was worth playing, and we wanted to make something that would feel like it, um, you know, like had had value to it that people would be like, "Oh, wow, I'm really glad I played that." Right? Um, but the level of reaction that it had, you know, especially like the 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 positivity of the reviews and how many people played it and kind of shared their experiences with it, um, and just you know the the degree to which it was kind of a defining moment for like a lot of People, I think, at that time uh, was something that you know we never would have or could have predicted. That we just kind of had to be like, oh, what you try to do is like make something that people will think is good, <laughs> and hopefully they'll like buy it so you can keep making stuff. Um, but when you are fortunate enough to actually kind of have one of those moments where it's the thing that that people are talking about and it's the thing that people are sharing their experiences about. Um, you know, you just kind of have to 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 be there for it, right? You can't predict that. You can't like make that happen. I mean, maybe if you're like Blizzard and you're making Overwatch, you can kind of be like, "All right, we're going to make this thing huge," right? <laughs> um, but when you make a game just with a few people in your basement, and then it it it's something that um, has that level of reaction, I think you just kind of have to like take it as it comes. You know? <laughs> so, on that exact note, did you feel? an immense amount of pressure to figure out what to do next, which, you know, that's ultimately Tacoma. Like, yeah. how, how did you land on that? Well, we wanted to... I think that, that something that we wanted to do is push forward from the way that we were telling stories, right? Because having worked on Bioshock and Minerva's Den and then gone home, I think we were very familiar with that shape of storytelling, you know, the, that, that kind of like you're moving through a space and you're finding these audio diaries and you're putting it back together. And we really wanted to push ourselves to say, we can't just rely on setting this game in a particular time. You know, we can't say like, what if it's in 2002? What if it's yeah. in 1994? Um, we want to push ourselves into a futuristic setting where we have to build more of that universe. And we want to involve the player more directly with these moments that the characters are experiencing while they happen, while also putting them in that role of an active investigator who's kind of like digging through those details and 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 playing that role in a very kind of like intentional way that you feel like, oh, okay, I'm I'm experiencing everything that's here through how I play and, and what I do. Um, and we took inspiration from immersive theater, specifically Sleep No More, which is a production that's done in New York that is about being in this 
physical environment while the actors move around you and you can follow oh, wow. them and, and they split off and you kind of have to see it from one perspective and then come back and see it from another one. But to, to, to build that into this kind of like natively digital experience where instead of following actors in a physical space, you can kind of move that timeline and interact with it mm. as the player. Um, and so, you know, I think that we wanted to say, you know, we, we established kind of a lot with Gone Home and not just to say, we're just going to do another one of those, <laughs> but say, like, how do we take what we did with that and build another layer on it that feels legitimate and feels like something that pushes what we do forward and that people will, again, kind of feel like they haven't played something like this before. So <clears throat> it uh, you you kind of started over in the middle of development with Tacoma, yeah. and I only know this because there was a point where you came out here to show some of the media yeah. the game, and it was still a space station, right. but the aesthetic was totally different. Yeah. You had uh, this in-game fiction. I remember, like, I'm a big Tesla fan. <laughs> it, you had, you, you'd set up Virgin Tesla as right. this mega corporation yeah, yeah, that yeah. was sort of like the, the biggest company on the planet that was, like, you know, integrated into the, the fiction of the game. So... Tell tell me about that version and why you ultimately you guys ultimately decided to pivot away from it. Well, I think some of it was as much as we were trying to move away or to 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 make the experience we were building feel legitimately different from Gone Home, we had still stuck with too many of our assumptions about it. Like kind of the shape of how you moved through the game was still very much based on Gone Home. And we had the AR figures in the the game, but they were really they were much more isolated. They were yeah. much more kind of like almost a, just a, a visual audio diary. You know, we've all seen in a lot of games stuff where there's sort of like a hologram talking to you, but it could be audio really. Um, and so when we got to that point, we just realized that we were not going as far as we needed to, and that the game that we were making contained ideas that that were kind of being pointed towards like the idea was there but we need to do more with it and so i think that was the turning point where we said how do we not just have these ar figures be there while you're hearing this little story moment how do we make them be like what the game yeah. is about you know how do we say that the station cuz part of the one of the things about the the station in the original version it was like like you were saying the aesthetic was very like large and and kind of sweeping you know there were these huge spaces um which you could kind of propel yourself through because it was anti-gravity but yeah. you or it was it was zero gravity but you were kind of moving between surfaces and like that was theoretically cool but it didn't support kind of what we do as storytellers in our games which is to make these kind of very relatable environments where you feel like you're like oh I can see what happened here I can see how this person was living um, and so at that point we had to say okay we're going to make this you know small like bring the scale of the spaces in reconstruct the station so that where the characters live it's actually gravitized so you can have those moments of like oh somebody dropped their you know shoes on the floor here or whatever <laughs> um, and also make the AR scenes which are the characters kind of having these 3D recordings of what happened to them be more expansive and kind of move around you and for you not just to be watching them but to be interacting with them again so that your relationship to those characters in those moments are like the core of 
the game and what it's about in in a in a in a new and unique way um, instead of just being kind of like a couple of additional you know strokes on top of what we had already done. Yeah. And and it totally worked. It really is. I, I'm. Uh, I'm loving the game so far. I'm, so, I'm, I'm in the middle of it still, which yeah. is a bad interviewer didn't finish the game before, <laughs> before the guest yeah. came in. But, well, uh, you know. I, I don't hold it against <laughs> I you. I appreciate it. You can, you can I'm glad what you like. I'm later. glad that you like what you've played so no, far. No, I really do. And it's, uh, I just love the, idea, the premise of being able to experience the story from sort of multiple perspectives. Right. With the, the, I mean, it's, it, it does feel like a step forward in, in the storytelling yeah. way. So uh, I think everybody should check it out. And, and uh, so the Tacoma we did get with these AR projections that you can manip- you know, fast-forward, rewind through, great reviews. Uh, do you, are you a developer? Do you pay attention to reviews? Do you care? I mean, you kind of have to, right? Like, I, I, well, not I mean, necessarily. You could be a total auteur and just say, here's my game, and I'm never looking at a review. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I like to ask. That's true. Um, no, I mean, I, yeah, I, I totally look at reviews. I think, it's, I think it's important to kind of know what is... Um, resonating with people, you know, and to know what parts of the experience you're building, um, you know, click with people and, and, and what... I think something that's interesting about reviews is kind of it talks about what expectations people had that they brought with it as well as their reaction to the thing for itself. And just so seeing, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a considered perspective um, yeah. on, on what you made. And I think that, you know... Making commercial entertainment means you have to be thinking both about like what's my perfect artistic vision for you know what I would do with no constraints, and also how is the audience going to react to this? Like, how are people going to um, you know like how how are they going to connect to this experience or not? And um, so you know, I I totally um, am a am a am. How do I put this? Uh, I, I value reading like reviews because they're they're like a a a, a um, well thought out analysis in in a lot of cases of yeah. sort of like here's what we put in the game and here's what we meant to put in the game and here's what we meant for people to get out of the game and how did that come across to to people who are spending time with it and kind of sharing their own experience on the other end. So before I let you go, yeah. uh, you've mentioned Ken Levine. I'm I'm, I'm curious, like who were who are some game designers out there that you look up to? Because you know you've we've just spent an hour or more talking about your journey up through the ranks, and you've you've gone out and you've earned it. Right. Uh, so who are who are some game designers out there that you either connect with personally or you really look up to and admire their work? Yeah. I'm, I'm always curious to ask that. I mean, I, I definitely um, you know Ken was a huge inspiration for sure, and um, Tim Schafer. You know, like Full Throttle is one of the most important games to me that. That a, I've a fellow a fellow person who is full is full throttle your favorite Tim Schafer game too? Yeah, yes. Yeah. It's, you, you can stay. I okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that like that game did so much at that time that was so unique. Um, you know, like visually it had like the full scene, the full screen like cutscenes that were yes. just like amazing to play in, in nineteen ninety five, but also fictionally, you know, it was as far as being an influence on, you know, my work, it was such a personal story. It was like, you know, you were a biker and there was this sort of noir kind of like murder mystery to it, but also it was just about a few people and what they wanted and what they were going through in a way that, you know, felt totally unique and really felt, you know, like just so 
there was a real humanity to that game that I think you know struck me because I played that game when it came out. I was a huge fan of um, you know Maniac Mansion and the Monkey Island games and Sam and Max and all. I the- knew I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know I, I had a sub- I, I subscribed to uh, the Adventurer the the LucasArts um, newsletter and so you know I played Full Throttle when it came out and and yeah it. It's one of those games that I, I keep coming back to because I'm just like those characters, you know, Ben and Maureen and um, and Corley, Malcolm Corley are all just so like well drawn and performed. Yeah. So, so I, I cut you off there yeah. in the middle. I had to, had to fit nerd out on <laughs> full throttle. But you're, yeah. so, so Ken so, and yeah. Tim Schafer. Yeah, and um, you know, people like. Uh, I mean, I'm not like on the one hand, I'm not a huge um, like strategy game player as far as like it's not my like genre that I'm hardcore into but I have such respect for Sid Meier for having created so much with such consistency like at Firaxis over all these years because there's there are the people who inspire you creatively that you're like I want to make stuff like that and there's people who are like man what you've done in the industry and how you've been able to like (laughs) you know like create not just any individual game but sort of that you know what something like Firaxis is, um, is really inspiring just to see somebody who's like, yeah, I've been around for, you know, 30 years and I'm just, I just, I make, you know, I got this studio, we make great stuff, we do things on, um, on the terms that, that we work on. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Shinji Mikami, um, you know, just Resident Evil is like one of my, you know, the original Resident Evil and Resident Evil 4 are like two of my favorite games and, the range that you can see between those two games, you know, of being like Resident Evil really established survival horror games, and then Resident Evil 4, very different, but like so masterful, and then playing games like Vanquish and like God Hand, you know, like, and seeing how much of just a consummate designer of all these different experiences one person can be, um, is a huge inspiration as well. Um... I mean, on the on the Sid Meier front, kind of like um, playing, you know, the I, I so I just shipped a game. I don't know if we mentioned this, but I didn't get around to playing Zelda, the new Zelda, Breath of the Wild, <laughs> until like just a few weeks ago. But now it, you come at it with all these expectations. Then everybody says, "Oh yeah, everybody so is good, like game of the is. year," which I yeah, <laughs> um, it, it seems like it so far. But you know, thinking about someone like Miyamoto as well, who similarly is like has just been doing great work for so long in so many different ways between like helping guide the hardware at the studio and kind of overseeing an experience like Breath of the Wild or directly designing Wii Sports or you know like all of these um, these ways that someone can have this presence over so many years and decades is really inspiring because I think that as a developer or as a designer or I assume as like a novelist or a film director or you know like Take your pick. As a creative person, I think you want to hope that you can continue doing work that's worthwhile as your life. You know, not just as like, oh, I made that one thing. You know, like, that was cool. But, you know, like, uh, I think that no work really stands in total isolation. And so I think you can have inspiring works. You know, you can, I can look at, like, Maniac Mansion, which I played when I was a kid, and which is about a teen going into a mansion and like, you know, like I I feel like that had an influence on Gone Home as much as anything else. But also look at, you know, someone like Ron Gilbert, not just being like, I made Maniac Mansion, but being like, I've been part of this industry and kind of, you know, 
worked on Monkey Island and then started his own studio to make like the Pajama Sam games yes. and you know all that stuff and basically pioneered edutainment right. effectively. Yeah. So, you know, I think you can be inspired by individual games or individual works or kind of someone's design aesthetic or what they bring to the games that they make, but also these people who have been able to really build a life in the games industry over time as someone who you know, is trying to kind of, you know, uh, uh, emulate that is really inspiring as well. All right, well, Steve Gaynor's not here for his health. He's, not, <laughs> he's, he's had to endure an hour plus with me to promote Tacoma, yeah. which is your latest game, uh, PC, Xbox One, yeah. um, maybe other platforms in the future. I suspect you want as many people someday to, <laughs> to yeah, get no, it as I'm, possible. We definitely want as many people as they can to play Tacoma, but um, yeah, right now it's on... Steam, GOG, it's on our homepage, and uh, and you can play it Windows, Mac, Linux, or Xbox One. Yeah, do check it out for sure, uh, and all of Steve's work. We just heard heard everything. We heard the life story. No, I, that was fascinating to me, Steve. Thank you so yeah, much for coming Yeah, thank you for in. having me. It was great to talk to you about yeah, this. Was, this was an absolute pleasure. So uh, for much more from the great minds like Steve Gaynor, those who've worked hard and gone out and... Uh, <laughs> you went out. No, you did. You went out and got it. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I... People always ask, like, oh, you know, I want to do this thing. I was like, well, go do it. you got to go get it. And that's yeah. your, your story over the last hour is, is just proof positive <laughs> once again. So, uh, Steve, thank you so much. For more on the best, brightest, most fascinating minds in the games industry, tune back for a new episode of IGN Unfiltered every month. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.